Hey, good morning again. And once again, thanks, Emma, for being here today. Um, our church, one of the things we love about ECC is that we're an intergenerational church. And we thought during Advent especially, we want to we want to do a better job of trying to get our kids, our teens, and our almost college students involved. So thanks. She's going to be helping us out with some of the scripture readings. Let's get going today with today's message. Have you ever, have you ever really thought about what it is you're referencing when you use the term, hey, that was a wake-up call? I mean, it is, it is some real profound imagery. A wake-up call, it is jarring. A wake-up call is disruptive. And it's also purposeful. A lot of people have compared COVID to a wake-up call. And what I want to do is I want to take that a step further than, than just that. When it comes to COVID, you better not hit the snooze bar. You better not. If you don't pivot when you need to pivot, you could lose your business. COVID, if it's affected your income and you just keep spending the way that you've been spending, you're going to blow through your savings really, really quick. You better take COVID seriously. The Denver Broncos didn't, at least their quarterbacks didn't. And how'd that work out for them on Sunday? And COVID is so unpredictable. Some don't experience any symptoms at all. For others, it can be fatal. And then for most, it's somewhere in between. So hitting the snooze bar isn't good. But neither is never turning off the alarm at all. We're seeing what's happening when people are living in this constant state of fear and complete isolation. The world is seeing skyrocketing incidents of increased anxiety and depression. In fact, maybe you saw that article uh, on Japan, what's going on in Japan right now. In Japan, in this last month in October, they had more suicides just in that month, just in October, than they had deaths from covid for all of 2020, all of 2020. COVID has shaken so many people to the core and in so many ways. And what it's also done, it's awakened a desire for people to anchor to something more solid, to find hope and place their hope in something that a virus can't take away. Well, this Advent, what we've chosen to do is to do a series called Expecting. And last week, we talked about how Jesus of Nazareth, he radically, radically changed people's expectations about God. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. The advent of Jesus introduced people to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus caused people to go back to the scriptures with a new set of eyes. And they began to see Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they expected. Jesus was so much more. That term Messiah means the anointed one. And Jesus brought the Old Testament anointed one verses together, all of them. Jesus was the anointed prophet. Jesus was the anointed priest. Jesus was the anointed king. And the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, they didn't stop there. Jesus was the word who was with God in the beginning. He was the one through whom all things were made. He was the light of the world. He was the suffering servant. He was the son of David. He was the son of man. He was the wonderful counselor. He was the prince of peace. And he's the one who the prophet Isaiah prophesied about when he said Emmanuel was going to be coming. And Emmanuel means 
God with us. God with us. Very good. Didn't even have prep on that one. I've been trained well. I've been trained well. Well, very, very <laughs> few people, very few people recognize Jesus for who he really was when he walked among them. And this morning, let's see what we can learn from those who did recognize that this was the one. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. So here's the question we're going to wrestle with this week. What did the people who experienced Emmanuel have in common? What did those people who experienced God with us have in common? God is still with us today, and he's closer than you may think. We can experience his presence. We can experience his guidance. We can experience his peace. We can experience his provision. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you could use more God with us in 2021? Yeah, all right. Every hand in this room is raised. All there's only three of them. All, it's not that impressive. All three of us. But I've been out there. You guys raised your hands too. Okay, so if you could use more God with us in 2021, like a hundred percent of the people in this vast room have experienced, then let's see. Let's learn from those who experienced Emmanuel that first Christmas. And let's begin with a group of shepherds. So we're finally to your part. Yay! And hey, if you've got your Bible at home, let's open up. Let's open up to Luke chapter two. And uh, we're going to look at this group of shepherds and how they experience Emmanuel, what we can learn from them. And we're going to start with Luke chapter two, verses eight through nine. Take it away from the ESV version version. <laughs> and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. Sheep and the goats. Sheep and the goats, they were the most important animals in the biblical world. And a number of Old Testament heavy hitters were shepherds, at least for some point in their life. Um, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and more. Well, in the Old Testament, shepherds were often referred to in positive ways. In fact, fun fact, shepherds, that term shepherd could be used and was used to describe leaders, especially great leaders, including kings. They were called shepherds. Well, this began to change in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, I don't think anyone was expecting shepherds to be among the first to experience the Messiah and the first to meet him. Here's why. By the time of Jesus, shepherds began to be portrayed more in a negative light. They were usually poor. And their work usually kept them from participating in the religious activities of the community. And many consider them to be drifters. Many consider them to be dishonest, troublemakers. So this was the reputation that shepherds began to get more towards the time of Jesus. Well, the angels, when they began appearing after centuries of silence, the shepherds were among the first to see and hear them. Let's look at verses 10 through 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. All right, well, the shepherds had been filled with great fear, and now they get good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Why? Because unto them, unto a bunch of lowly shepherds, a Savior had been born. And who else was this good news of great joy for? If you look at the text, the text says it was for all the people. All the people. And remember that because we're going to circle back to that in just a few minutes. Well, it's fascinating to consider the angel's word in context. These are the same words that people expected to be used 
when the emperor experienced his birthday. The emperor expected his subjects to hail him as the savior and the Lord and to celebrate the good news of his birth. The child who was about to be born was going to be a very, very, very different kind of king. Brings us to verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so, just and that's 12. good, just verse 12. Perfect. <laughs> well, in this account, in this account of the first Christmas, it's interesting. Luke mentions the manger, not once, not twice, but three times. That is significant. Because you think about this, how many times did Luke mention the wise men, the magi? Zero. How many times did Luke mention uh, this, the dream that Joseph had had? Zero. And yet, Luke mentions the manger three times. When the long-awaited Messiah arrived, angels sought out shepherds, and they told them, look for a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough for animals. I came across this quote as I was preparing this week. I love this. The contrast between the birth's commonness and the child's greatness could not be greater. Boy, that is well said, isn't it? The way that Jesus came, it doesn't just speak to God's faithfulness as these prophecies were fulfilled. It also speaks to God's character as he stepped into the brokenness and the messiness of life. All right, let's go to verses 13 and 14, just 13. Uh-huh. Yeah. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All right, another fun fact. How many of you heard the song, Angels We Have Heard on High? Me, I did. All right. Uh, that's where that song comes from, that whole line about Gloria in Excelsis Deo. That's Latin, which was one of the original translations from Greek, was in Latin, and it stands for glory to God in the highest. So there you go. All right, well, the fact that the angels were singing, what's going on here? This is another shot at the emperor. It's a shot across his bow. He assembled choirs to praise who? The emperor himself. The emperor in those days was Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. After the defeat of Mark Anthony Augustus, he turned a Roman Republic into an empire. And when he did, he proclaimed that he had brought peace to the whole world, he said. And he declaimed, claimed that his dead adopted father was divine, which would make Augustus the son of a god. Well, once again, what we're about to see is a very different king from a very different kingdom had arrived, had broken in here. He was the true son of God, and he was bringing a very different kind of peace than Augustus brought. Let's look at verses 15 through 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Well, it probably didn't take too long to find that baby in the manger because Bethlehem was not a very big town. And so they went there and they found the baby lying in the manger, just as was said. All right, so verses 17 through 20. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. When I was studying this passage, one of the commentators brought out a great point. They said, did you notice that the shepherds responded with both praise and with 
obedience. And it is remarkable how often the response that people have to the God that they understand is one or the other. It's very rare to see both of those things. I think you've all seen, all of us have seen what obedience without praise looks like, right? It looks like grumpy Christians, grumpy church people. Those people who say that they really love and praise God, but you look at them and it doesn't appear like they really do love or appreciate him or even love or respect people. Anyone know people like that? And then there's the, the other folks too, the, the people that, that um, they have praise without obedience. You know, they, they're, they're these folks who, when the music is playing and the worship songs are going, they are completely into it. It is full of passion. It looks like full devotion. And then when the music fades, their lives don't match up with the words that they've been singing. You ever seen that before? <laughs> we will not say any names here over the, over the, uh, over the, the, the camera. Well, what did the shepherds do? They responded with both praise and obedience. Maybe, just maybe, God knew something about these people that he appeared to and spoke to through the angels. God in his sovereignty, he's given us all kinds of examples for times when the people that you would expect to be the ideal choice didn't live up to expectations. An example that comes to mind is King Saul, the first king of Israel. This guy was the tallest. He was the handsomest man in the entire nation, and he was rich. So he looks like this is the ideal choice for the king, the shepherd of Israel. But when the tallest man among the Philistines challenged the people of Israel, when the tallest man among the Philistines, he mocked God, what did the tallest man in Israel do? He stood back. And who went after the giant of the Philistines? Not the tallest man in Israel. It was a shepherd boy named David. <laughs> named David. When you dig a little deeper, you start to realize shepherds may seem unexpected to us when it comes to the people that the angels would come to among the first. But with hindsight, they are just the people that we should have expected. The shepherds were told to look for the baby in the city of David, and David was a Shepherd. Shepherd. Shepherding was considered considered a humble position, but Jesus was born in a manger. These particular shepherds were watching their flocks in the same area where David probably tended his sheep. And it's possible that these particular shepherds were shepherding sheep from this flock. A lamb would be selected for the Passover sacrifice right there in Israel, in Jerusalem. Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his own life for his sheep. And he also said, my sheep hear my voice. And what was it we just read here? The shepherds responded to a call to come in from the fields to see the son of David. Centuries after David, the shepherd responded to a call to come in from those same fields to be anointed king. If all that's not enough, remember that shepherd term. It can refer to a king. Jesus, the good shepherd, our savior and our Lord. God knew what he was doing when he sent the angels to go and share the good news with those shepherds. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Well, next week, we're going to explore the account of a priest named Zechariah. Our theme next week is going to be unexpected places, but we could have used Zechariah for this week's theme about unexpected people too. Zechariah appeared to be somebody who God wasn't listening to. 
Why? Because Zachariah and Elizabeth were way advanced in years and they were never able to conceive. In that time and in that place, people believed that that was a sign that God had somehow forsaken them, had cursed them, that he certainly hadn't blessed them. But instead of giving in to bitterness, instead of giving up the priesthood, Zechariah continued to serve faithfully year after year, decade after decade. And his praise and his obedience resulted in a miraculous birth and in God's perfect timing because that baby that Zechariah and Elizabeth ultimately had prepared the way for Jesus. It was the person that we now know as John the Baptist. You know, some people say, God, God, you know, especially late in later times, in our, in our times, people say, God appears to the poor and the marginalized. Is that true? Yes. But it's not a full stop, is it? Because he also appeared to Zechariah the priest or made himself known to Zechariah the priest and Matthew, who was a wealthy tax collector and Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion and Paul, who was a Pharisee and Peter, who was a fisherman and the criminal on the cross, who was a criminal and Luke, Luke in particular, records a whole lot of instances where Jesus engaged with, talked with, spoke with, met with, gasped, women. Can oh, you believe no. that? Believe that. So remember what that angel said about the good news? I think I asked you to remember. Who is it for? The good news is for all the people. All the people. If you're taking notes, this is noteworthy. What kind of people experience Emmanuel? The humankind, the humankind. The word of God says God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. But the Bible also says there's a narrow gate and all the people don't pass through that gate. That brings us full circle. Time has come to answer the question we opened with. Here we go. What do those who experience Emmanuel have in common? They bow their hearts to our unexpected king. Jesus said, my people hear my voice. And we've just listed a whole lot of examples of unexpected people from just about every walk of life. What did they have in common? They responded with both praise and obedience. Today, we want to invite you to do the same. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a unique set of gifts and abilities and talents and experiences that no one else on the planet has. And there's a savior. He wants to meet you right where you are, right now. Listen to this invitation. And this comes from somebody who knew Jesus personally. We know him as John. It says this in John chapter one, verses nine through 12. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, the word says. In 2020, it was a wake-up call to so many of us. So what better year than 2020 to put your trust in the good shepherd to lead us and to guide us and to protect us? And what better time to receive him than this Advent season? 
God's people have been commemorating the season of Advent for hundreds of years. And we've been commemorating the sacrament of Holy Communion even longer. Here's what we remember when we gather around the Lord's table together. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a whole lot that the Bible doesn't say about this sacrament that some call the Eucharist, some call Holy Communion or the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. There's a lot that the Bible doesn't say about it. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific kind of bread or a specific kind of wine. But one of the things that the Bible does say is this. This is out of 1 Corinthians 11 also. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So here at Emmanuel, the only one that's going to keep you from the Lord's table is you. We're going to take some time right now to examine ourselves as we prepare ourselves to receive Christ in this really special way, the sacrament of Holy Communion. And so if you can pray, pray the prayers that we're about to pray and you can do that with sincerity, then we welcome you to join us at the Lord's table. Take a piece of bread. And when you do, remember that this is his body given for you. Take a little, uh, you could take that, that bread then and dip it in the wine or in, in the grape juice. And when you do, remember that this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you do, don't worry about getting the ritual right. What's most important is that you make it real. Make it real. All right, let's prepare ourselves for this moment now. We invite you to join and, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are out there all around the Twin Cities right now and beyond. Father, thank you for gathering us around your table for this holy moment during this holy season. Father, that word holy, we're so thankful for it. It's a word that means set apart. Father, may we be set apart as these people who maybe no one would expect to be the ones that you would appear to and work in. But Father, you've chosen us before the foundation of the world for this moment and this time. So Lord, we pray that we would fully receive you and respond with both praise and obedience through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we, we now join our voices in, in one more prayer that you taught us to pray. And that's this, our, our Father, Father, who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, 
thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 